If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying that saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts and the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but God's child and since you are his child, God made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by, who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I was an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you also, sorry, if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they, want to, what they want is to alienate you from us so that you, may have the zeal, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just as I am with you. My dear children, for whom I again in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of divine promise. These things are taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother for it is written... Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labour. 
because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters like Isaac, are children of the promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. May God help us to understand that reading this morning. Father God, we again thank you for your word that you have spoken to us. And we ask that as we, as we look at it now, as we study it, that we may know this good news that we've believed, that we might see how precious it is, that we may never want for anything more. Lord, open our eyes to see what a privilege it is that we can be your children. And we ask that you would do this for our good and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, I might be wrong. I've only been a dad for six years. But I gather that one of the most difficult things about being a parent is knowing what to do when your kid is making a really dumb decision. Now, when your kids are the age of my kids, it's easy because basically every decision that they make is bad. <laughs> and so you're, you're always stepping in. You don't really question it. The other day, I walked in and saw one of my children standing on a spinny office chair trying to reach the permanent markers on the top shelf of the cupboard. And just everything about that story is a bad idea. And so I didn't, I didn't question it. I didn't go, oh, I wonder if I should let this play out. No, I stepped in, I intervened, there was no question. But as kids get older, parents have to start wrestling with the decision of how much do I let them make their own choices? How much do I let them make mistakes? In my previous church, I was the youth pastor, and I remember sitting down with one of the blokes from church. Uh, he was a stressed-out dad. He was losing hair uh, because his 15-year-old daughter had started dating a guy that was all sorts of bad news. And this dad, he was torn. Do, do I say something? Do I intervene? Do I pretend everything's okay? He had to, he had to question, do, do I step in and risk losing my daughter? Or do I do nothing and risk losing my daughter? And I remember him saying to me, he said, Phil, for the last 15 years I've been trying to teach my daughter to make her own decisions. And now she has, and it sucks. <laughs> and some of you, you know this pain, this anguish. Some of you have parented teenagers. Some of you are in it right now. Some of you have come out the other side and it was all okay, but some of you are still living with the anguish as you watch your now adult children making the same sorts of bad decisions. Well, today we're looking at the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, and in this passage, Paul is playing the role of the parent. In verse 19, he describes himself as a mother in labor. He is in anguish. He's distressed, and it's all because he's watching from the sidelines as his own spiritual children make a really dumb decision. Because the Galatians 
are Paul's spiritual children. He labored over them when he went to Galatia to preach the gospel. Now, mums in the room, before you get too outraged, thinking, what does Paul know about labor pain? Remember, this is the guy who, when he was in one of the Galatian cities, was dragged outside the city and had rocks thrown at him until they thought he was dead. And then he went back in the city to keep preaching the gospel. He labored over these Christians. He toiled over them. He loved them. And now he's watching on as the Galatian Christians begin to walk away from the gospel. Now, we've seen this already, but in case you've missed it, the Galatians started off trusting in Jesus for forgiveness. But now they've believed the lie that to be right with God, you need to make yourself acceptable to God by being circumcised. They've believed the lie that being a Christian is about what we do instead of the truth that says being a Christian is 100% about what Jesus has done for us. And so Paul is in anguish. He's in labor again. The children that he birthed are making the worst possible decision, and so now he's marching out onto the field. He's not going to sit on the sidelines and just let them make a bad decision. No, he intervenes. He is on the field causing a scene, pleading with his children to come back to the true gospel. And so here in chapter 4, he wants to make sure these Galatians understand what it is that they're doing. He wants them to know what they're walking away from. He wants them to see afresh just how good it is to belong to God. He wants to win them back. And so what does he do? He preaches the gospel to them. And in particular, he shows them how precious it is that they can be called children of God. And so as he does that, he shows us three things about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a child of God. We're going to use these three things as our three points this morning. You've got them on the outline if you grabbed one on the way in. What is a Christian? First, Christians are redeemed slaves. Second, Christians are adopted children. And thirdly, Christians are heirs of God. But we begin at the start of chapter 4, where Paul's actually kind of continuing on from an argument that he made in the previous chapter. What he's tried to argue, he's made the case that the true children of Abraham, the descendants of the Old Testament patriarch, that the true descendants are not circumcised Jews, but those who have faith. He's basically saying, being circumcised doesn't make you right with God, doesn't make you one of God's people, trusting Jesus does. But then in chapter 4, he continues by arguing that any Jew that is still waiting for God to bring about the promises he made to Abraham, anyone that's missed the memo that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises, that Jesus is the one through whom every nation on the world will be blessed, anyone still waiting is like a kid who's too young to take possession of their father's inheritance. And Paul says that makes them pretty much a slave. It's a weird argument. It's a bit strange to us. Uh, but think of it like this. 
Uh, Think of little Prince George over there in England. Second in line to the throne, he's heir to the British Empire. If the monarchy lasts that long, he will most likely become king. But until then, what power does he have? He's basically a slave. He's a very privileged slave, but he's a slave. Because every little bit of his life is controlled by someone else. He doesn't exercise any authority, any autonomy, any freedom. He's a slave. Paul is saying that the Jewish descendants of Abraham, who are still waiting for God to fulfill his promises, are the same. He says they are slaves. And that's because everyone, Jew or Gentile, believer or unbeliever, everyone was once a slave. Paul says in verse 3 that everyone was in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. What that means is that every single person alive, man, woman, child, religious or non-religious, everyone is a slave of Satan's demonic powers. Now, that sounds like a crazy conspiracy theory. But this is one way the Bible actually talks about our sin. Sin is slavery to Satan. Now, you're thinking, that's crazy. I was never a slave of Satan. That's because Satan has deceived us into becoming slaves of something else. It it never looked like we were serving Satan. Not very few people in the world look like they are actually serving Satan. But they are enslaved by the things that Satan entices us with. And it's really easy to see how this works with things like money or popularity or success. Most people today live their lives in slavish pursuit of these things. Where every decision comes down to whether it will earn them more money or win them more friends or gain them more success. And I'm sure you've seen elements of this in your own life. Times where you've made these things your God. And when someone gets in the way of you gaining more money or more success or more admiration, you get angry. And when you fail at getting these things, you become miserable. And you may even become willing to, become so desperate that you're willing to cheat and to lie or to steal in order to get these things that you crave. Think about it. That's what happened with the Australian men's cricket team back in South Africa. I'm going to bring it up again. It's a painful memory for some of you, I know. But they were desperate to win, weren't they? They idolised success. They were desperate to be the best. They wanted the glory that comes with being the best. And so they pushed the boundary. They started playing dirty. They cheated because they were slaves. And friends, all of us, All of us were once slaves to sin. Slaves to things that we treated like gods. Slaves to things that we thought would make us happy. Things that we thought would satisfy us. But in the end, these things will eat us alive. They'll consume us. They'll destroy us. But here's the astounding thing. Because here in Galatians 4, Paul says that even religious people... Even people who are trying to please God by obeying his laws 
are slaves. In fact, he, he puts them on the exact same playing field as irreligious people, people that want nothing to do with God, because Satan has deceived them both. Satan's deceived the non-religious people into thinking they don't need God at all, and he's deceived the religious people into thinking that they can earn God's love, that they can reach out and grab God's blessing for themselves. And so, religious people, they work and they work and they work in an endless pursuit to be good enough and to be moral enough and to be honouring to God enough their slaves. Religious people are slaves, non-religious people are slaves. All of us were once slaves to sin. But, verse 4, When the set time had fully come, at just the right time, God sent just the right person to redeem slaves, to purchase us out of slavery. At exactly the moment that God had chosen from the very beginning, God sent us exactly what we needed. Paul lays it out for us here, that Jesus was born of a woman, he was fully human, so that he was able to redeem humans. He was born under the law, so that he was able to redeem those who had been condemned by the law. He did what every human before him and since had failed to do, which is he obeyed God. He lived a perfect life, and so he was able to fulfill the law of God on our behalf. He was born a human, he was born under the law, and, and thirdly, he was, he was God, which means he, he and only he had the authority to redeem us from slavery to sin. And so friends, the thing we need to see this morning is that unless Jesus came to redeem us, we would still be slaves to sin. We would still be on that endless path to make a life for ourselves apart from God. Living the life of the constant chaser, chasing love, chasing money, chasing some sense of success, always chasing, never getting. Or we'd be religious people, furiously trying to do enough to earn God's love without ever really knowing if we'd done enough. Because we were so deeply enslaved, we didn't even know that we were slaves. We just thought, this is life. But friends, then Jesus redeemed you. With his blood, he bought you. He paid the price to own you, to welcome you home so that you could never again have to be a slave. And Paul says the Galatians have experienced this. They were redeemed. But now it seems they're they're walking back into captivity. They, they, They... somehow it baffles Paul how is it that you can taste freedom and then go back into captivity back into slavery it's so stupid and so Paul is pleading for them to come back don't keep walking that miserable path and so then he wants to show them more because the blessings of belonging to God don't don't stop there it's not just that we are redeemed but Paul says that Jesus redeemed us in verse 5 that we might receive adoption to sonship. Jesus redeemed you, not just so that you would be declared not guilty, 
but that you would belong to God. At the same moment at which God, the judge of all the earth, declared you not guilty in the criminal court, he stepped into the family court and he declared you his legally adopted child. That's a baffling concept, isn't it? That we can be adopted children of God. But it gets even better because God sent his son so that you might have the status of being God's child. But in verse 6, Paul tells us that God also sent his spirit so that you might have the experience of being God's child. He says, because you are his sons... God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. Which means that one of the ways that you can know that you're a Christian, one of the ways that you know that you are God's child, is that you start relating to God as Father. Now, there are lots of people in churches these days that talk about God. Yeah, I believe in, in God. And they talk about God like he's, he's out there, he's, he's a big God, he's, you know, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's, he's the creator and judge. But they're talking about God like he's from another planet, far away, distant, unreachable. But you see, for the Christian, it's different. For Christians, God is not less than that. He is still the almighty, all-powerful creator and judge. He's not less than that, but he's also... He's also our Father. He's the God that you have a relationship with, the God that you want to talk to, the God that you love to listen to. He's not just a far-off God, He's he's my God. And friends, is that how you relate to God? When you close your eyes to pray, who is is the God that you're, you're envisioning? Who is He? Is he the far-off God, looking down, distant, out of reach? Or is he your God? Is he your Father? Friends, if if we belong to God, then we can have a relationship with him. We are adopted children. He is our Father. And the only way that we have that is when God gives us his Spirit. The only way that you can be like a kid delighting in daddy is when God gives you his spirit. And this is one of the most amazing, most incredible, most life-changing things that the Holy Spirit does in the Christian. And I think sometimes we get a bit confused with the Holy Spirit because for various reasons, we've sort of believed this idea that the Holy Spirit is the one who does miracles or makes people speak in tongues or, or makes people get healed. Now, the Holy Spirit is God. He can can do all those things. But friends, you know what He promises to do for you? It's way better. I've had had Christians, kind of, you know, well-meaning Christians who have noticed that I've got bad eyesight, and they think, oh, maybe the Holy Spirit will heal you. And and they talk as if that's the best thing the Holy Spirit could do, and that, that would be nice. But you know what the Holy Spirit has done that is way better? He's enabled me to call God my Father. He made me want God. He made me realise that I needed God. 
He gave me the humility to admit that I was wrong. To give me the insight to see that Jesus was the way to God. And none of that, none of that would I have done by myself. I don't know if you have one of these people in your life, but do you have that person that you just want nothing to do with anymore? Maybe it's an ex, maybe it's a friend that you had a fight with, maybe it's a member of your own family that has treated you badly. And you go, well, maybe I don't hate them, but I certainly want nothing to do with them anymore. Do you have that person? That, that person, there's nothing in all the world that could make you want to, you know, restart that relationship. Nothing in all the world that could make you want to see them again. Do you have that person in your life? Because you did. Because that's exactly what it was like between you and God. And Paul tells us in Romans that we were God's enemies. We, we hated God. And we might not have known the God that we hated, but we, we hated Him. We, we couldn't stand Him. We wanted nothing to do with Him. The very idea of a God that would tell us how we should live, the very idea of someone in the world more important than us, it made us angry. We hated it. And friends, there was nothing in all the world that could possess you to want God. There was nothing in all the world that would make you want God. And so it took something from outside of this world. It took something supernatural. It took God himself working in you, softening your hard heart, opening your eyes, making you want God, moving you to accept God, allowing you to love God. And friends, all of these things, sorry, none of these things we could do by ourselves. None of it. We couldn't redeem ourselves from slavery. We couldn't reconcile ourselves to God. We couldn't make ourselves... God's children. All of it is something that God did for us. He redeemed us. He adopted us. And the third thing that Paul shows us, just quickly, is that God didn't just adopt us as children. No, he made us his full-blown heirs. Now, verse 21 to the end gets kind of confusing. Paul uses the story of the two sons of Abraham to set up a contrast between those who are under the law, personified by Hagar and her son Ishmael, and those who are children of the promise, personified by Sarah and her son Isaac. Now, if you were with us at the start of the year, we looked at this part of the Genesis, uh, but if you don't remember, God promised Abraham a son. But Sarah, his wife, was barren. She was old. There was no chance of her having children. And so they decided that the best way to get what God had promised was for Abraham to sleep with Sarah's servant Hagar and father a son by her. And God said, no, (laughs) that's not what I'm doing here. That That is not how this is going to happen. Sarah will have a son. And eventually she did. And so here you have Abraham with two sons, one by the servant, by the slave woman, Hagar, and one by his wife, Sarah. And here Paul is using this story to show that there are really only two kinds of people in the world. He says every one of us is either a son of Hagar or a son of Sarah. There are the people who try to get from God, 
People who try to earn, who try to work, who try to you know, use God as a vending machine and they just got to try and shove him in the right spot to get the blessings to come out. And then there are people who receive from God. The, the children of the flesh, children of the promise, children of the slave, children of the free. And only one of these children receive the inheritance that God promised. You don't get God's blessing by earning. You don't get it by by getting. You you get it by receiving as a gift. And friend, if you have put your trust in Jesus, then you're not only a child of Abraham who received all that God promised him, but now you're a child of God a son of God, and you receive everything that belongs to his firstborn son. Now, my mum likes to joke that she's spent my inheritance on a caravan already. I'm not getting a cent from my parents, and that's fine. Do you know why? Because I've got so much more. Because I'm an inheritance, I I share in the inheritance of God. I share in what belongs to Jesus. Everything that is his will be ours. Because everything that God gives to his son, he gives to his sons. Now, I don't know if you can get your head around that, how incredible that is. But, but this is the important bit. The only way that we experience all these blessings is by receiving them. And so in verse 30, Paul says, get rid of the slave woman. What he means is, get rid of any reliance on yourself. Get rid of any reliance on your upbringing or your church attendance or your baptism or your performance or the strength of your faith or your traditions. Get rid of any measure by which you might consider profitable to earning God's favour. Get rid of that. Send it away because those things will only enslave you. They will not make you right with God. They will not make you his child. They will enslave you. And friend, if you're trusting in Jesus, you're not a slave. You are free. You've been redeemed by Jesus at the cost of his life. You've been adopted by God through the gift of his spirit. You've been made an heir. And everything that belongs to Jesus now, you will share in. We've been redeemed by slavery, from slavery. We've been adopted as God's own precious children. And we've been given the privilege of being his heirs. Friends, we've been given so much in the gospel. God has offered it all to you. And the the message here is don't think for a second that you can earn it. Don't think for a second that you can do anything to contribute to gaining that. He has offered it to you. And so we receive it by faith. Let me pray. Lord God, these blessings are, are too much for us to comprehend. How good it is that we can be called your children that we can relate to you, the all-powerful, all-creating God, as our Father, the Father who loves us, who delights 
in relating to us. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would help us treasure this privilege, that we would know how good it is that we can be yours, that we can go out knowing that there is nothing else in all the world that we need because we are heirs with your Son, that we will share in his glory when he reigns over all the earth, that we will share in your perfect love The same love that you have for Jesus is the love that you have for us. All these things are ours, not because of anything that we did, but because of what you have done for us. And so we gratefully thank you. And we ask that you would keep us treasuring these things, not looking elsewhere, not returning to the slavery from which you've saved us, but living wholeheartedly for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.